ex-gardener is asleep, he has an extraordinary gift. The government wants it, the scientists want it, but to keep it may cost him his life. It might be better if Alex didn't sleep at all, but he cannot resist entering the dreamscape. Can you? See Dreamscape in the West End and all over London now. Certificate 15. It takes an extraordinary adventurer to enter the Dreamscape. Welcome to another exciting edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I am Dion Baya here, as always, with Jay Blake. Jay Blake is a little under the weather tonight because uh, we had this. to excuse me. We had this splendid idea of. <laughs> yeah, uh, we did an experiment. Yeah, so on a late Saturday night, since it is the winter, we figured, why don't the movie we're watching is suited to winter watching. So we said, hell, let's open the window. Yeah. And you bring the temperature down, so we bundled like we're right up. there. We so bundled up, we opened the windows. We made it. We got made it, it to a crisp 19. <laughs> we made it 5D. 17, 19, 17, 18, 19 degrees in the apartment. We made it nice. Uh, what is that, 40? 5D. 40 smelling? Well, we didn't, we didn't, have, a th- we didn't have 3D. I mean, I guess the, it was our own 3D. Yeah, because we brought in the, 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 the sensory perception <laughs> feel, of, of, feel. Of, of cold. We wanted to feel the movie. Um, so, yeah, Blake was closer to the window than I was. So the draft. Like, <laughs> he got hit with the draft. He's a little under the weather. And it's late, too. It's late on a Saturday night or Sunday morning, whichever way you want to go. But that's a whole other class. Sunday morning sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it'll go a little... Uh, Toward the religious as we get older. <laughs> Sunday morning sleepover. Yeah, we'll do we'll profile religious movies and talk about their impact on seven hundred club episodes. <laughs> we'll bring on people <laughs> like you know. All right. Well, this week we're doing um, a uh, a movie near and dear to both our hearts. Every movie seems to be on this. Well, <laughs> on this, why uh, would we do one that, that isn't? <laughs> sure. Well, if we start doing recommendations, maybe uh, you know we'll, we'll do something we aren't familiar with. Um, this week we're doing uh, um, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. 1982 um, was a hell of a year. Hell of a year. Yeah, this came out the same weekend as uh, Blade Runner. And it came out, what, two weeks before or after E.T.? I think it was after, but it was shortly, I think it was shortly after E.T. And that, that kind of helped, I think, uh, people are, this kind of tanked at the box office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Carpenter's the thing. E.T. did Gangbusters. I think also did. So did um, uh, Blade Runner. And I think those two movies also kind of were the trifecta that put this one down because people were citing how horrible this movie was with the gore and the sci-fi and look at how good uh, you know this Philip K. Dick uh, Ridley Scott movie yeah, sci-fi yeah, is. Yeah. Look how good Spielberg's dealing with the sci-fi and he already done Close Encounters. But that's like the crazy thing about it is you know there's a couple instances where you can point and uh, as a little uh, you know at some point we'll get around to doing a movie called Peeping Tom. Yeah, Powell. Which uh, Michael Powell that movie ruined Michael Powell's career. The reception yeah. was so bad. And the thing like almost did that for John Carpenter. Um, it's kind of amazing to think 
And we, we talked about the same thing with Orson Welles. He oh, yeah, it. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. That was like right out the gate. He did two <laughs> movies, Citizen Kane, and then he's, and then he's it, done. And then it ruined him. He can never, you know, never get back uh, any of that. I mean, and some people argue. And I, they're all great. And the, the crazy thing is that, like, I mean, I guess if there was a bad movie and it ruined somebody's career, like, Except, it, w- it's it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be like that big of a, you know, yeah. a story. Yeah. But the fact that, like, these are arguably like the best things they ever did yeah and with the thing it, it like it didn't perform as well at the box office as, as everybody would have liked but it was the critical reception that really kind of killed it and it, did it was this one that actually personally hurt him too as well oh yeah i mean well anybody Carpenter. that's not gonna i mean who really takes naked like negative criticism well that's but true. but here was a guy he had done Primarily low-budget movies and some TV movies, and then he's doing his first studio picture. And they've all been reasonably successful. I mean, they, oh, yeah. you, know, uh, uh, you know, Halloween was a huge hit, and then the TV movies he did, Someone to Watch Over Me and the Elvis movie. Well, and Escape then from New York. Escape from New York, and uh, prior to that, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, and, his, and he won an Oscar, didn't he, for what's the, his senior film? Oh, what's that? Uh, was that Oscar-nominated, maybe? The, the, it Dark was, Star? Yes. N- no, it was the the thing that got Oscar, and I think it was like a student Oscar, was like The Adventures of Bronco Billy or something, which was a short that he did. Although that was, like, to my recollection, that's more of a collaborative mm. film, and he did the score and edited it. I'm not positive if he directed it or not, but uh, we're in a treat. We're for, in for a treat this week, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, Jay Blake is a aficionado on Jar Carpenter. He's interviewed him several times. Uh, they 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 go out drinking. No, they don't. Watch <laughs> <laughs> they watch movies together. I would, I would like to. <laughs> they chain smoke like together. Um, but you, yeah, you are you are an aficionado of of Carpenter, uh, and so you could you could w- work us through the nuances of what's going on uh, in front of and behind the camera for this film. I could I can try. Um, so he's like so he's coming off so all this these movie, successes. This he's coming off of all these like low budget movie successes. He gets the chance to do his first studio like big budget film and he does a remake of the Howard Hawks produced film a th- thing from another world which is a huge classic in its own right it's classic Howard Hawks is his idol um, it's a film that he loves so he does he sets out to make this uh, to do a remake of it um, the 1951 film, also directed by Christian Nyby. Nyby. But, but there, the, there's some say, controversy yeah. about who Hawks, really who no. was the creative uh, hand in Hawks, that movie. Which is a lot of people say Hawks, but yeah. who knows? Um, Based par- off the novella, uh, the the John W. Campbell Jr. story, who goes there? Which also for sci-fi was hugely groundbreaking in the late. 30s because it was one of the first movies to deal with that or stories the stories of the invasion of the body snatchers pod people yeah uh, like you're the not paranoia. Who you are. yeah so. um so it's all that's the original source material there was a movie made in the 50s and now it's being remade in 1982 uh they've asked john carpenter to come aboard to do it um, apparently, very a few treatments and different versions of the script were uh, were made. I think maybe even Toby Hooper wrote a version of the yeah, script. Yeah, he was signed on. To, he he wrote a he wrote a draft of it, um, and I guess they didn't like it or they they thought against it. And this is another one of these great uh, pod uh, instances in our podcast where we can play the what if game because there's a whole bunch of what ifs later on of, about casting, which is yeah, yeah. But yeah. Part of our would have game if Tobe Hooper went to directing it, it would have been the best elaborate set you'd ever <laughs> seen. But then, like, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, 
you know, he blows his wad on the sets, or even I'd say people say Poltergeist, where it's like, you know, they say Spielberg kind of. Had a, yeah, had we, a hand we in might. That. We should think about doing Poltergeist. Well, there's there's I heard they green, greenlit a remake, or not even that. There's a it's te- coming out. Yeah. it's like this summer. It's produced by Sam Raimi. Yeah, they must have dropped a teaser already. I haven't seen it. You know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff going. So it's interesting that Carpenter wasn't the one who said, "Hey, let me do this." Yeah, yeah. If they came to him, and he's like, "Sure." And so finally, uh, a screenwriter named Bill Lancaster writes a script for it that everybody seems to like. I'm sure Carpenter probably worked with him or did some rewrites or whatever, but Bill Lancaster gets the credit. Now, he's the son of Burt Lancaster. Oh, I did not know that. Um, famous actor. Of course. And, hope people uh, know who he is. <laughs> and his real claim to fame as a screenwriter was that he wrote Bad News Bears. Oh, wow. Uh, and, like, I, I don't know if he wrote the sequels or if he just gets credit because they're based on characters created by or whatever yeah. but that, that was his, when he went to Tokyo <laughs> <laughs> that was his big claim to fame was bad news bears um, so he writes a script and he points for him the script is a lot more it's not so much the sci-fi element and he likes the short story doesn't think it's great but recognizes that it's significance uh, to the sci-fi you know fandom uh, but what he really likes about it is like the isolation of Antarctica and this group of of uh, individuals trapped. Yeah, and then they've also changed because I think in the original story, it is kind of a shapeshifter that takes people over, and that's they they're I, for obvious reasons in 1951 they can't really do that for the uh, original thing from another world, so they turned it into kind of like a universal monster. kind of like a plant Frankenstein monster yeah, yeah. Uh, with James Arness, who we couldn't remember his name from last, <laughs> he was, last like, cast. I don't remember what we were talking Peter Graves' brother. Why, that, why he came up. Um, and, oh, because we, we got him confused with, um, what's his face, with uh, from the Transformers oh, yeah, cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, By the Mysteries. way, Transformers, there's Transformers G.I. Joe cast. Yeah, you should, you should definitely check those two out. Um, uh, Robert Stack, we were talking about him. Oh, yeah, yeah, Got yeah, confused yeah, with James yeah. Arnest. So in, in the 51 movie, he's more of just like a plant person, yeah. kind of like a Frankenstein. Very much like, you a, know, a, uh, like a Karloff, yeah. you know, Frankenstein Tall. monster. Uh, and that's a great movie. So he, uh, Lancaster, the scriptwriter, brings in that element from the story, yeah. the original novella, of the shapeshifter, which is really cool. Yeah, a little more true to the source material. Yeah, and uh, together, and uh, and Carpenter makes this decision that it's going to be an all male cast. Which is interesting because I, I heard in an early rewrite they did have some ideas there, and 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 they kind of got rid of that pretty quickly. And also, it turns out to be an all male crew as well. There's only one woman on there that. Uh, at the time, she was pregnant. She went away. Was replaced by a man. So the crew is entirely male as well. Yeah. So that's mixed even more. Sausage fest yeah, yeah. up in British Columbia. Up in, up in Stewart, <laughs> British Columbia. Um, uh, which you know, it's not. It, you think about it like, I know you think about like, okay, so what's the big deal? But when you also when you think about it, like, how many movies can you really think of? Well, that's the case in terms no. of like an all male cast. Yeah, I mean, there's only like what twelve angry men, maybe, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, know, there's I not a not. whole lot. So uh, they set out to make the thing. Um, Carpenter's talked about how it was the most prep he ever had for a movie. Like he jumped on it right after he was finished Escape from New York, and he worked on it in pre-production for like over a year or something yeah. like that, which is something he had never done before and never. Have never has never done since, um, 
And so they make this movie and it comes out and he's feeling like it's his greatest accomplishment. And all of a sudden it just like the critics just like tear him a new asshole over it. Like it practically ruins his career. I mean, he goes into Christine after this, but it was probably something he was already kind of, you know, contractually obligated to do. Um, Christine. Yeah, the movie Christine. And then it's like, what's he going to do? I mean, he's basically like poison at this point. So he talks with his management. This is, a, you know, all hearsay. I mean, this is the story anyway. He talks to his management and the management's like, you got to make a nice movie. <laughs> you know, he's being called like pornographer of gore. It's a, it's, it's a pretty gory movie uh, for the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that I guess it's something else to get into that that almost a hundred percent of it all still holds up today, like the the the, the special effects in the film. Um, I wouldn't say from by today's standards it's very gory. It's kind of frightening, but I think it's done in such a realistic way. Where I'm a realist, I love it. It's not done for the exploitive kind of a way, yeah, yeah. you know, for gore's sake. I think it's done to just you know further the story, which I think is completely I wholeheartedly sure. endorse. Um, was Christine a success? I think Christine did okay. It wasn't working off a of King. It Stephen wasn't. King's it wasn't a huge success, but I don't think it it didn't bomb or anything. But it really was at the point where people he people hated the thing so much that he was a little bit of box box office poison in terms of you know studios wanting to work with him. So that's why he makes Starman. He's like, okay, I made, like, the ultimate alien horror movie. He's like, I got to do something that's kind of nice. <laughs> so he makes a love story, yeah, which is a, a, a magnificent film. I mean, an absolutely beautiful and film. And it's interesting because I wonder if, in, in the preliminary stages of that, if people thought it was a misstep because it's kind of dancing in the same kind of arena of alien. You know, it's not like he's doing How Harry Met Sally. He's doing kind of another sci-fi. Yeah. And people, like, you know, could be like... Dude, you just you know shit the bed on this one, so to speak. Well, at least from the critics' point of view. So, uh, is this the smartest thing you could ever be doing? Is let's dip, <laughs> dip my hand in the pool again and do what others, you know? But he, I mean, he pulled it off. I mean, uh, Bridges got nominated for an Academy Award for it. I mean, it was kind of that movie. Um, again, I don't think box office wise, I don't think it was a huge hit, but critically, it was. Yeah, people loved it. Um, people still love that movie. People and just like it's the greatest things in sliced bread. And then, you know, that allowed him to make things like Big Trouble in Little China and and then go on with his career. I mean, he kind of looks back and says about his career, like, you know, imagine how much different his life would have been had the thing been a bit real hit. That had been like the E.T. or something of the time. You know, um, but nowadays it's it's caught like this. It it captured an audience in home video and television and. You know, I think that's like a double-edged sword. I mean, one, it's great that a movie takes off eventually. Um, but there's that sting that it didn't <laughs> on the first pass. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. I mean, now it's it's probably... It's it's hailed as its greatest movie. Yeah, but you know, it's always so shitty where it takes time. I mean, to bring up another example, you have the actor Charles Lawton who did a movie that I love, uh, Night of the Hunter. He directed that. People hated that movie. He yeah. never directed anything else. He ended up dying a couple of years later. 
that's regarded nowadays as a cult classic. You bring up, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, that kind of bomb when it came out. That's a classic now. So it's weird. You know, yeah, okay, 30 years or so afterward, it, they're classics, but when they bomb right then, it's just I like, know. you just say that to you, like your actors, like, well, hopefully it'll, it'll catch fire in the well, future. Well, so much is, so much importance is put on, like, that initial box office kind of money, you yeah. know, and once, like, in the 80s with shows like Entertainment Tonight, where people started announcing how much movie, how much money a movie was making, I mean, that's... That's coming in, like, the thing's coming into that era where, like, that makes, that's, like, news. Yeah. Like, people at home are hearing that and don't know why they care, but the, all of a sudden, <laughs> like, they know this, and that's, like, that's put up as, like, a, a measure of, of, of the quality of a movie, not whether it's financially successful, but, like, how good it is. Yeah. Um, just really weird in its own kind of, because now, I think, nowadays, that's kind of just become some, like, such a polarized people only look at it like that it's like you know well you know, yeah, it didn't make any money like so yeah. much <laughs> i know it still could be great you know and as we've said but it's, it's weird so yeah you have a lot of factors going into making a film where you think you'd just be done with it and then you go on to your next project and it's like you have to worry about all the backlash of like you know probably like what like a year later you know if you stop production principal photography and then a year later you're you could be doing something completely different yeah, yeah and then you're already like dealing with it's a flop it's oh what are you gonna do with your career well it's like well i think it's good i mean at the time it didn't seem like anybody really appreciated the movie i mean even the, like the critics were just like it's too gory it's not doesn't they, they call it overproduced original. which i don't really get um it's just uh, like uncalled for, <laughs> like like everybody who kind of widely regarded Rob Bottin's effects, who did the special effects for the movie, Rob Bottin, young guy, he was like twenty when he did that yeah. movie, but uh, ridiculous. He had done the Howling, which was like his first big success, and then he uh, shortly after that he did, he got asked to do the thing, and um, and so even then, like it was being, like his efforts were being recognized as being kind of brilliant. Um, which the fact today, when you watch it now, it is like amazing how well that stuff holds up. I know it. 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 It's in, especially because I don't think any of it's CGI. No, no. I mean that didn't even exist you know, yet. Exactly. I mean, I it, mean, you saw it, did, but it's like <laughs> in the movie you see where computer graphics are at with, <laughs> with Wilfred Brimley like <laughs> looking at the cells. Yeah, yeah. Being, actually, you're like, right. It's, it's like, that's how primitive it is. I mean, so there's nothing. I mean, I, I don't even think there's any kind of like. Even like computer trickery in it, you know. No, what I mean, there's no, matte paintings and stuff. Like, but it's all practicals. It's, it's all, all practical. miniature. You know, it's and it's it's unbelievable how well it it it, it it's still kind of just it look. It's I mean, aside from there, obviously there are things about it that are dated. Yeah. Um, but the effects are less dated than that than like I just watched a couple weeks ago. We kind of talked about it briefly, not on the show, but in our private lives how I just I did like a double feature of like Mimic and The Relic oh yes 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 and uh, like and the thing like, and I look I those both movies are something totally different and I enjoyed them um, but it's an example of but it's like these hold up but these are less dated when you watch them now they look better than those movies well, it's, it's, it's sad uh, as a side note I had never seen well, which The Relic and I've always wanted to, and it just fell through the cracks. So I watched it not too long ago for the first time. And that's sad when, you, when you're when you 20 years too late to a movie. You know? and <laughs> I you saw that at the movies. Yeah, and you know how 
you would have loved this freaking movie when you'd seen it come out because it would have been awesome. But now it looks like, you know, it looks like a freaking uh, computer game. It's like I, yeah, yeah. I said to you, I watched Event Horizon not too long ago. Event Horizon is still a great movie, but it's so weird at the beginning when you see all those those effects of like they were really trying to sell like no gravity, so yeah, you see yeah. stuff floating by, and it looks all real like crappy car- now. Cartoon pill bottles, yeah, like you know, and, you know and like, but at the time you're like, wow, it's really there. And it's, so it's so weird how your eye for the time will accept that trickery, but then nowadays it you know it really can just make a movie fall flat or take the audience out. You know, if if the if the effects are that hampering, especially CGI, CGI yeah, I think is yeah. is horribly unforgiving. So if you have some bad CGI in your movie, uh, that shit doesn't hold up. I mean, you know, I, let's take out young young Sherlock Holmes. That <laughs> young shit, <Indiana> not young, <laughs> young Sherlock Holmes. That that'll always hold up. That CGI, but like you know, yeah, it's, yeah. but it's I mean, when you have stuff like, you know. Uh, you know, like like the relic that it just it just it's sad, you know, and, it, and it's still a kind of okay movie. I preferred the mimic uh, better, but uh, yeah, yeah. you're right. Like it's it's weird how you know that movie was done ten fifteen years later, but the thing from eighty two still holds up. But but it's because of the practical photography. Yeah, yeah, you know that stuff's all done practically. Yeah, I mean, look at the. I mean, just look at the talent behind that movie. Okay, we got Carpenter. Dean Cundey, yeah, uh, cinematographer, yeah, who had, you know, don't know if he necessarily got his like true start with Carpenter, but they came up together, and he had done Halloween and The Fog and Escape from New York, and <coughs> excuse me, and uh, Rob Bottin, young, uh, crazy effects guy, uh, uh, Albert Whitlock. Yeah, like, Albert Whitlock, uh, who had worked for Hitchcock. Hitchcock. He did uh, he did the birds for Hitchcock. He's a matte painter, a matte artist. He did the birds. He did Marnie. Uh, he did, he that, did like all Curtin. of his movies, like post the birds. Yeah, basically. Uh, he did uh, Earthquake, big big Irwin Irwin Allen uh, hit in the seventies and Hindenburg. So, uh, and then you have uh, Stan Winston comes in. And he he does a little bit there for for the dog scene at the beginning. Yeah, basically what happened was Rob Bottin was just over. You know, schedule like just had too much. He's to overwhelmed do. with everything. Um, so he brought in Stan Winston and Stan Winston's people to do the kennel scene with the dogs. Yeah, at the beginning. Um, but Stan Winston has always been like very much like that's Rob's movie. We just came in and helped out. It was God really his Stan thing. Winston. You know, he doesn't like never, really never. hesitant to take like any credit he, for it. He's like, uh, what's his name? Dick Smith. You know, he's always he's right of right of their own heart. Those two peas in a pod. Those two of them. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, Stan Winston, um, and and then music wise, we got a new Morricone doing the score, and it's the first uh, movie Carpenter didn't do the score for. Yeah, I mean in the in the catalog of Carpenter's work, I mean he didn't do the score for the th- thing, he didn't do the score for Starman. Okay, and. Maybe the ward is the next movie, <laughs> which, is, which is which fairly is fairly recently, which is like his last, his most recent. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of another movie that he didn't do the score for. He might not have done the score for Escape from L.A. Shirley Walker. Well, they collaborated together, but she, I think she pretty. I mean, but she's based. She's basing it off of work, off of his work. Yeah, know, from his, the his original, score from the, the original the theme. So and he ha- and he's one to say we've talked about his in Halloween three we talked about his scoring and stuff when we did that podcast, 
Uh, but he, he has some, he's not just doing a, a theme and that's the, or a score and that's the end of it. He has some really good scores that are like, you know, I mean, he's like Ennio Morricone where he has, you know, he'll have a movement, you'll have a theme for the movie that'll, that'll, that'll follow the entire time. And you could pick them out. Like I still to this day, I know, uh, you know, we all know Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I love Assault on Precinct 13s. You like Halloween 3, although he didn't direct it, he did the score. Yeah. Um, what else? Escape from New York has its own great theme that great you know. Theme. So a lot of his stuff. I love In the Mouth of Madness. In the Mouth of, of Madness. Of his scores. Uh, so it's like his scores are very, for people like a guy, Jay Marcus for the Podwits, you know, who likes scores and stuff. He's a guy you go out and you sought, sought after his score. So he's, it's, it's interesting to, for, to bring Enyo in. But then at the same time, he wasn't completely satisfied with what so, Maricone was giving him. Yeah, so basically how it worked was, one, there's a language barrier. And so Carpenter has to fly to Italy to meet with Maricone the first time. Um, there's a translator, and they talk. And, and you all should know who Maricone is. If you don't, stop this podcast now. <laughs> go look at a book, read about it, and yeah, go learn something. You don't have something. time to go into <laughs> it right now. Jeez Louise. Uh, so he goes and he meets with Maricone, and he... Uh, they talk about it. So there's really, look, there's two ways to score a movie, basically. There's, you get a rough cut of the movie and you write music to the movie. The other way is the, based on uh, maybe some stuff or uh, the script and discussions with the director. <coughs> Cough it all up. He took some expectorants. The composer will write cues and give the director cues, and then the director will edit them in has how he wants, you know? That's how, like, a uh, director that's working with a library of music, like Romero did a lot of his early work with just, like, stock music. And then you would edit it in yeah. how you see fit. So Marconi says, look, I can do it this way, I could do it that way. Carpenter says, why don't you just write shit and give it to me, and I'll stick it in the movie. I know you're good already. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, he starts, Marconi starts sending him cues. And it's just, according to Carpenter, um, it's just not right. Mm. Like, it's just, it's the three, he's like, it's beautiful, but it's not the thing. So he has to meet with Marconi again, and he says, okay, it's great, but what I need, like, less notes. <laughs> like, I need it to be less. Um, Howarth, Alan Howarth, who collaborated with Carpenter on most of his 80s scores, says that Carpenter actually played him the Escape from New York score, but Carpenter's never kind of like admitted to that. But he basically says that he told Morricone, less. It's great, but just give me less. Like it needs to be. Un poco <laughs> lesso. Uh, so then Morricone comes back with the theme. Um, which I just, I think it's, Carpenter's like such, uh, he's like, he's like, but he's like an enigma in a way. Like he's, he's a guy that hates the credit directed by, like directed by John Carpenter because he's like, or, uh, a film by John, a film by John Carpenter. Cause he's like, film is a collaborative medium. You know, like a film by one person, that, that's, that's absurd. But all of his movies are John Carpenter's yeah, he, The Thing. So he takes ownership of it that way. Um, and, you know, 
he talks about how making music for his movies at the beginning was a necessity because of budget. But then he gets to a point where he doesn't need that. Yeah. Like, you know, he doesn't need to do it. And he, conti- he decides to do it because it's more, you know, it's more of him taking ownership of, his, of the film. So here's an instance where he has, like, arguably the greatest, uh, it, definitely, like, most people would say top five film music composers of all time uh, doing his uh, music for his movie you know like a legend it would be like Bernard Herrmann doing it for you I mean yeah. it's like that's how that's like how important a Neil Morricone is yeah, of course. and he says to Neil Morricone essentially oh what you're doing is great but make it sound like me like yeah. me, like just do John Carpenter <laughs> you know like the New York stuff's great, but I need you to do John Carpenter music. And then he, he almost ran out of cues as well. I mean, when they were getting to the final post-production editing stage, he didn't even have enough. So he was starting to, fill, they say, he was kind of filling in the blanks. So, stuff. yeah. So then he, he's in editing and he realizes that there's like holes in the movie that need music. And the music he has doesn't work. So he can say, like, I can go through the rigmarole of getting a translator, calling up Neil Morricone trying to get him to write more music. He says, I can go into Alan Howarth's studio in, in Glendale. Props. <laughs> Glendale, well, California. Glendale, California. <laughs> Old stomping ground for Tiana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I Not can, that we grew up there, but we had, a, we had some fun <laughs> times there. Recorded a couple of casts there as we well. We did. Sidecasts. Powerwoods.com. Um, and I could just do a couple of pieces of music. So he goes in, and then like in a day, he does a couple of pieces of music. That stay within the confines, sound, and fit seamlessly in. Basically, and then, like, they're not on the soundtrack. He's not credited for any of it. Um, He'll downplay it to no end. Like, oh, what I did. It's carpet. I mean, it's like I didn't do anything. It's just tones. Like, I I can't even take credit for doing music because what I did was so stupid and so, like, little. But other than the actual theme. Doom, doom. Doom, doom. Other than that, which yeah. is definitely norm, uh, was definitely Morricone. Like the music that's truly memorable about that movie, that like really makes that movie, are those like three cues that he did. Carpenters, yeah, which is interesting. And and since we're talking about sound, when it was released on VHS, it was one of the first stereo surround. They called it Matrix surround tracks. So when people were starting to, uh, with their VCRs, yeah. being able to have some sort of stereo surround or I guess a very um, uh, you know simple Dolby surround, this tape offered the surround sound experience with like the helicopter going by and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so the film basically is about twelve dudes. <laughs> Forty-five minutes into this thing, let's talk about the plot. Uh, twelve <laughs> dudes. At a research station on the South Pole, Antarctica, which is interesting because the original uh, Howard Hawks film took place at the North Pole. Uh, they're doing their thing, uh, whatever you do out there to research. Yeah, stations. it's unclear like what exactly they're doing. It's out scientists, there. but it doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. You know, it's interesting because none of them seem somewhat as much scientists as like they just seem like they're babysitting. You know, they're, they're yeah, just you know, I mean, like. Jack Nicholson from The Shining. Yeah, they're, they're just, just like hanging out there, there, trying to f- stay sane. They're drinking. Well, we have pot. Uh, McCready, played by Kurt Russell. Yep, he's a pilot. 
Yeah, so he's there for he, he's and his backstory, which they never really talk about, is supposedly he came up with it. He's uh, ex Nam uh, helicopter pilot. Uh, has, he was very disenchanted with the world after that, so now that's why he's stuck. We got Palmer, who is like the stoner. Yeah, who I, I guess is the other pilot. Uh, yeah, one would think he's the other. He's the other kind of pilot that would like they have down. two pilots. Yeah. Then we have like three doctors. Yeah. We have uh, Blair, Blair, played by Wilford Brimley. God bless him. <clears throat> Doc Cooper, who ha- old guy with a nose ring. I know. Baffles me to this day. It's so interesting. You don't realize in the first or second or third or fourth. I, I don't know how. Many Especially because when we're watching it as kids, we're watching it like on VHS or on TV, and you can't tell. I don't know. I mean, but and now when you watch it, it really like, projected on a big screen or now like in high def. I, I only realized it a couple years ago that he has a nose ring. You yeah. know, and he's completely just like. Oh, okay, whatever. And then the third guy, Fuchs, I guess. Fuchs is, is like the, the other third, doctor. like, doctor guy. Yeah. Um, then you have, like, the boss. Gary. Gary. Who carries the gun and holds the keys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have... Um, uh, Childs. Childs, played by Keith David, who I don't know... Not sure what he does there. Yeah, he's just muscle. And he's young, too. He's, like, 25 in the time when he did this movie. Um, the other black guy, Nalls, I guess, yeah. is the cook. Yeah, that we know him from... Um, uh, Punky Brewster. He was Punky Brewster's was teacher in, in the eighties, and he was also in first season of uh, Say by the Bell. Say by the Bell. And, Good and, morning, Miss Bellissiers. And he also played a brilliant role in um, uh, the Sweet Back, the remake of uh, Bad Bad. Oh, fuck, Jesus, um, what's his name? Uh, Melvin Peoples. Mario Van Peoples movie he did about his father Melvin uh-huh. doing Sweet Back song. Yeah, yeah badass, yeah, yeah. bad badass, whatever. He plays uh, as a cameo Bill Cosby in the movie, and he's amazing because Mar- Melvin had to go, was trying to get money to finish Badass, a sweet song. It's called Badass. That's the name yeah, of the movie. Yeah. And, uh, and he goes to, 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 to Cosby, and he plays a great role as Cosby. And I always said if they ever made a Cosby biopic, he should play Cosby. <laughs> you know? And then uh, who else do we have we got in here? Clark, who takes care of the dogs. Clark, who, take, who we also know from, he's in Shoot to Kill, a great movie with Tom Berenger and Sidney Portier, and he's also, for you and I, he's in the Mr. Boogity movie, the Disney ABC oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sunday night movie, Mr. Boogity. The first which, one you mentioned, actually both of those were movies that we watched together at sleep, like our own little sleep. Which one, Shoot to Kill? And, yeah, we watched oh, that. Yeah, they, your my dad, dad loves that. <laughs> it's a great movie. Your dad's VHS tape. Yeah, that and Tom that. Berenger, Christie Alley. That's a great, that's a great uh, movie. And... Um, we know him from them. And then we have... Windows. Um, Windows, who is from like the... the wa- communications office. Yeah, he's the radio guy. He's from the Warriors. He's from the Warriors. And he's some, yeah. from some other stuff. I actually saw him in something recently. Well, recent as in like it was in the 90s. Uh, and I was like, oh, look, he's still acting, or was. And uh, Bennings. I'm not sure what Bennings does other than like complain. Yeah. He's, 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 <laughs> he's a, the complainer. He's a ginger-haired guy with balding on top of the beard. So that's basically the whole... That's our crew. That's our team. And they're, you're, they're at... Uh, what is it they, they call the, the, uh, the thing? They're at the uh, British Antarctica Research Station, part of their midwinter... Uh, oh, this is... I'm sorry. I'm reading the wrong thing. Evidently, part of the uh, Antarctica British Antarctica Research Station midwinter feast... That they have on June 21st, it is a um, uh, a um, thing they do every year. Is they pl- they watch the thing down in Ar- Antarctica. That's the that's the, um, the tradition they have. Um, but what were they're at like research station number four? Isn't that what they call it? Maybe the name of their, their, yeah, their research station. Yeah, exactly. What and I don't know what the heck they're doing down we there. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah, they're and just so doing the, stuff, checking snow levels. <laughs> it's still <laughs> snowing. It's and still, so the movie opens with a helicopter chasing a dog through yeah. the snow. Jed the dog. God bless Jed the dog. 
he makes it to the camp where, where everybody were just talked about lives and works, and uh, they try to this. Well, you know, before, prior to that, we fade up and we see a little UFO. UFO. Oh, yeah, yeah. That thing flies by, enters the Earth's atmosphere, very much like I think the opening of Predator too. Doesn't it have the opening of Predator. <laughs> A little nod from the Predator. And then another nod to the original. Then we have the title card. Yeah, uh, yeah. The flares up. And it's the same font as uh, the originals, The Thing. Yeah. Uh, And then we cut to like this, uh, it gives us 1982 Antarctica. And then it comes up to this very, very picturesque, like uh, beautiful vistas. And then we see this helicopter and we see this dog running. And then it's like, what the hell is going on? And these guys in a helicopter trying to shoot a dog with a high-powered sniper rifle. And you're very confused. Then we meet our crew at the Antarctica number four station. Yeah, yeah. Chilling. And you see, like, the every day there, they're playing ping pong. They're watching uh, VHS tapes of tape TV. Yeah, McCready's uh, playing chess and drinking whiskey. I wonder, you know, that J&B bottle that's, like, so prominent in that scene and then... You know, in other scenes, that's a very Italian, like Giallo, like that's the brand that they drink. J- JB, yeah, and like it's always like product placement. I don't, know, you know, clearly the Italians are not getting product placement money for it in like the old Giallo movies. Yeah, but I, it's like for some reason, like it's that bottle, that brand is just like if you watch like any Giallo movie from the seventies. Man and into the 80s, JB. like it's that's what they're drinking. <laughs> it's also interesting to, to note that there's not, there's uh, as we said, no females in the cast, but supposedly it's uncredited. But Adrian Barbeau is supposed to be the sound, the voice of the computer, the female voice. Yeah, and but where he, does the I don't remember a computer talking. She said something, she says, like, checkmate or whatever. And oh, then, and then the, he pours in it in, uh, he says, he says, Yo, you're a dirty, so, bitch. yeah, yeah, yeah. He swears che- cheating, at it. bitch, or yeah, something yeah, yeah. Like that. he pours his whiskey into the and fries the machine. Very uh, what is that four bit or whatever two bit graphics? I don't know. It's beautiful. Uh, and then all of a sudden they hear the, they hear the gunshots, and then the, yeah. the dog runs into their to their camp, and 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 uh, they're like, oh look, it's a great looking husky. And then the helicopter lands, and they're speaking Norani. How do you Norwegian? Norwegian or whatever. I don't know what the <laughs> if their language is called something else. Yeah, uh, we should know. Yeah. So they. I mean, I don't know how much detail we want to get into. They drop a grenade. Guy tries to find it. Yeah, the helicopter pilot tries to find it. He blows himself up. The other guy with and the gun. And blows up the, the helicopter. The other guy, which I love the goggles. Yeah. With just like the little slit. Just that one slit. He's ranting in, in, in Norwegians, you know. I, 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 <laughs> and they're like, they don't know. And he's still shooting. He tries he, to shoot the dog. Shoots uh, oh, Bennings in the leg. By accident. Um so he and walks then, right past the, the crew going yeah, after the he's dog. Yeah, he's just in the crew. He's trying to kill the dog. Turns the corner, and, and Gary shoots him in the head because Gary had his little side-out revolver, and he's very upset that he did it, and as he should be. And he kills, One shot, one kill, right to the head. It's down. really like a brilliant opening. Oh, draws you right in. It, it pulls you right in. It's like this element of the unknown... It sets up the mystery. And it's interesting. Like within the first like five minutes of the movie, we have a mystery. Why? Who is this guy? Why is he chasing this dog? Yeah, who and are then they? We find like, and then they're the things that bring us to our main characters. The language barrier even makes it more confusing. And it's interesting how Carpenter sets up the movie, um, how he, he has the this space of time and the passage of time you know it's the dissolves which usually nowadays annoy the hell out of me to me you could pick a low budget movie out uh by the use of dissolves but in this movie it works brilliantly carpenter's use of fades and basically like dips to white is like 
one of my favorite things about this movie. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, it seems to be there's like a big stigma against it now. I mean, a lot of people hate dissolves and fades and they think about it being like old or cliche or whatever or too many, whatever. But for, it's like the pacing of this movie. You don't even notice it in the first. It's just like perfect. And when they're like outside, it kind of slowly dips to white because of the snow, I guess. And then back into like the next shot, the next scene. And when they're inside, it goes to black or it'll fade to black and then just cut. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily fade back in. Um, Just uh, really, I mean, this is one of those movies we talk about um, perfect movies you know, we've talked, you know, for us about for, recently we talked about one because you were like, you think the, Thermi- uh, we, the Terminator cast. Oh, which is <laughs> which we just did. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about this with Terminator. Like to me, this like there's I can't think of anything that could have been done to make this movie any better. Yeah. Like it just works on like every level, everything from the m- the music to the casting. um <clears throat> Which, by the way, we forgot one guy. Norris is also <laughs> in. Uh, oh, he's the, one of the he's one of the twelve the, the twelve guys, um, and he plays a really kind of significant part in the first uh, half of the movie. And um, but this movie just you know he just fucking nails it. I mean the script is good, um, just like and its pacing is just like by today's standards people might think it's slow, but it's just. Perfect, and the way kind of it unravels. I don't say I don't think it's. I wouldn't say it's slow, but it's just. It's just like it's, I could, it's setting things up, and it's interesting because, like, <clears throat> like I guess, uh, to touch on how for me how brilliant of a portrayal uh, Wilbur Brimley plays in this movie. I mean, he's yeah. so good in this movie, and I don't know if you even noticed the first couple times you watch it what's going on with his character and what's, what's happening. And, you know, and, and then halfway through the movie, you think he's a raving lunatic, yeah. you know. But it's just, you know, you just... It's all this character development. And, it, and, and the pacing helps that, especially at the beginning. Uh, they get the dog. Dog's moving around camp. And then uh, they're finally like, yo, Clark, uh, you need to lock... Because Clark, Clark is the one also who handles all the dogs. Because I guess every camp must have a dog because you have dog sleds. Yeah. So he puts the, this dog... In with the other dogs, shit goes down. This is where shit goes. Now I can't even that's, imagine. That's the rest of the movie. Just imagine. I mean, we talked. This is another thing we talked about with like the Terminator cast. Like, imagine seeing Terminator for the first time. Not like how was it advertised? Like, what do you know about it going in? So say, imagine the thing. You sit down. I mean, like, I, you, what do you know about what's going on so far? And then this is the fucking reveal. Yeah. <laughs> like, just imagine, like, how fucking mind-blowing Those poor it would be. fucking dogs, man. Oh, man, nothing Jesus. more heartbreaking than that one dog uh, trying to bite his way out of the cage. Oh, well, yeah, biting, and then, and then it's <laughs> and shooting then that sh- shit out of shooting it. goop at him. Yeah, I mean... Now, I will... Now, you know, on a, on a personal note, as a collector, which we've talked about in other casts of art... And, on the side cast. and comic book yeah. art and, and animation art and stuff. Um, the guy that did the story, the storyboard artists for the thing is a, guy, uh, a comic book artist named Mike Plug. Okay. P L O O G. Uh, did a lot of horror comics and stuff. Uh, kind of a legend. And uh, I am fortunate enough to own, so far, only four, but I own four original storyboards by Mike Plug, and they're from this kennel scene. Wow. And 
my favorite one, which is like the least grotesque or whatever, or action-packed, it's the shot of the dog sitting, laying like on the straw, like just facing the wall with the other dog sleeping behind him. Yeah. And like what I love about that shot, and it's like one of my favorite shots in the whole movie, it's like the oddness of it. Like, well, it's weird because the dog comes in. He just the walks other dogs in. Are like, uh, against the wall, they're where they usually are. Maybe yeah, they're with yeah. friends, and he just sits down because he's the outcast. He yeah. sits down just sits right, right in the middle, and then lays down and just f- faces straight ahead. And there was this huge uh, internet debate that I was reading about before we watched the movie. That like, why don't the dogs know immediately? And I'm wondering, you know, dogs are usually very good about sensing things, yeah, but I wonder yeah. if the thing is so good yeah, yeah. that. Of, it's not going to reveal itself until it start that until it wants to, and then that's when the dogs are like, "Oh, wait a minute!" Yeah, because yeah. the dogs in a second they start realizing when the, when it starts doing stuff, the dogs like, "Fuck, fuck, 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 fuck!" And for me, it's so terrifying that you see what's happening, and then like Carpenter, not Carpenter, but that one shot. I was telling a, a friend of mine who is maybe even more of a Carpenter fanatic than I am. I was talking to my buddy Dave about this storyboard. Yeah. And I was talking about it, like I just say who you referenced in our Halloween three cast. <laughs> I said I don't know how I don't know why, but I just love this. And he's like, "Well, it's that shot is like you, that could be the poster for the movie. Like that shot is a metaphor for the entire movie. Yeah. It's like this, the oddball like, and they're in the kennel. I mean, they're trapped in a cage with this thing, yeah. and they don't know. So like, <laughs> and he just kind of like." blew my mind and that like on some subconscious level like what I think what draws me to that image is that it is that one shot that that scene in the movie is that is like a metaphor for the entire movie well maybe we'll figure out how to include a, a couple of your stills so we can show people what you have and then they can gawk over what they don't own and you do <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> look at you um, I find it so terrifying for me that that you know Russell is um, is just you know minding his own business grabs a beer and then you hear this echo and you don't know what it is and he yeah, hears yeah. it and you know I guess in the theater it must have been freaky yeah, to yeah. hear that and then he just he must know something's wrong pops the alarm and everything starts going down and there's so much crazy stuff going on in this in this scene with the dogs and you know they come in and they've, all the dogs are basically dead or just fucking cracked out the ones that are able to escape and they have to they have to try to like uh uh, settle down with settled sedatives and then they end up burning the thing uh, Keith David comes in with the flamethrower I, I don't know why they have a flamethrower in Antarctica but they must have it to, <laughs> yeah they got like three of them at yeah least. So, so at least it's able to melt things quickly and they you know they, ha- they do have a weapons depot so you know and they're able to burn the thing uh, and uh, there's so much great little things going on there where you don't really see like the the uh, right before they burn it the thing that comes out towards them is like it's so it, dog tongues. Dog teeth. tongues. Yeah, and it, and it looks like a little flower, and it's yeah, like shooting yeah. towards them. There's a well, lot of kind little of the, it's stuff. One, it's one of the like the most like groundbreaking. We talked about Rob Bottin's effects, and furthermore than the effects themselves, the concept of it. Now, the short story we talked about being more of a shapeshifter story, but Rob Bottin comes to John Carpenter with this idea of like let's not put limits on ourselves. Like this thing has imitated things from throughout space. You know, we don't even know. Like, so it doesn't have to look like anything we've ever seen before. Like we can stretch our imaginations because it could be, we could see pieces of everything it's ever imitated. Yeah. 
And so Carpenter's like, holy shit, like, go down to Plug's office, with, sit down with the storyboard artist and start drawing. Tell him what you want. And let's start seeing, like, sketches of, like, just crazy, <coughs> just crazy, like, imaginative stuff and like that's the beauty that's that's like the biggest beauty beautiful thing about this movie is that like we get like it's basically like having like a young hungry genius of an artist like allowed to just let go yeah and just let his imagination fucking run wild and you know like there aren't too many examples of that especially in cinema Especially in like big budget cinema, yeah. where like that gets to happen. So like the things that he comes up with for this movie are so extreme and out there that like I think it's one of the things that like as much as like he got celebrated for like his effects, I think that's one of the things like people couldn't handle. Yeah, about it. It was like it was just too fucking far out there. Now have we have we missed already? They they. Um they decide to go look at the Norwegian camp. That that's already happened. So they they fly that's over. Already happened. They yeah. fly I mean, over I don't, the Norwegian camp. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important plot point. I don't know, like, you know, I don't know how much of like we actually need to get into like the nuts and bolts of yeah. like the story. But that is like a really important plot point. Like when we watched this movie in class uh, when we were at film school, you know, our teacher was like, "We're gonna watch the remake of the thing," and he came up and. Uh, as he's walking into the projection booth, I said to him, you know, like, it's not really a remake. Like, in a lot of ways, you can kind of think of it as like a weird sequel. Mm. If you think of, like, the original movie as being the Norwegians. <laughs> yeah, this is the next. You know, like, this is kind of what happens next. Because what happens is McCready and... Uh, uh, and Doc Cooper, they take a helicopter and they go to the Norwegian camp to see what happens. And it's like, it's burnout. There's a guy who's fucking slit his own throat and his own wrists. Yeah. I mean, like, shit has gone down. Yeah, they see... There's they see, people that are burned. There's uh, there's axes in the wall. There's clearly... They've, they've barricaded areas. The, the place is completely toast. And the then there's one a big thing block I, of ice. And then there's a big block of ice with, like, a hole in the middle of it. Now, the th- one thing I would say about, like, the most recent quote-unquote thing movie which is like 2010 2011 yeah um which is not great it's supposedly a remake but it's really a pre- it's the prequel it's like it's what happens at the norwegian camp the one thing i will say that's fun about it if you haven't seen it and you're a lover of john carpenter's the thing and maybe you haven't seen it because like you know that's why yeah. like you you love John Carpenter, you don't want to see some crappy version of it. The one thing I'll say that's fun about it is they went through like painstaking efforts to like detail how the Norwegian camp gets that way. Yeah, so that so when you watch the John Carpenters, like you see why the axe is in the wall, you see why certain holes in the walls are there, you see why the guy who slit his throat and his like everything, like for that I give them like crazy props because they do a really good job of like the 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 quote the thing that they find outside before they leave. Like, you see why that's there and why it's burned and all that stuff. So They should have just paid more, a little more attention on the plot. Yeah, they should have made a better movie. Yeah. But it is kind of fun in that sense. Because there's, there's points in that movie that are just completely idiotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, 
so you know, I guess you're right. We, we we don't need to go through the entire thing, but that but it's it's almost like a, it's like a giallo or a detective story. You're yeah. why is this happening this way? It's more it's more clues, and then well, we, they find videotapes, and that yeah, and then you see the videotapes, and they and you see them circling the spaceship in ice, which is a shot right. Like it's not they didn't use the exact footage, but it's a shot right out of the original yeah thing where they're like, look how fucking big this thing is, <laughs> and they blow it up, and then they then they go. And they go look, and they find the remnants of the spacecraft. And they, 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 we get into some matte paintings there. How big it beautiful, is! Beautiful, beautiful matte work. Yeah, by, uh, by uh, Lock. And, and and they go down, and they take a look at it, and they're like, "Fuck, this thing is an alien." And they get back, and they're like, "And this shit's gonna." And then we have uh, Blair, Wilford Brimley's character. He's doing some post mortem work on yeah, yeah. the the dog stuff that they killed. And this is in watching the movie uh, this past viewing really i think grosses me out the most is that as the movie progresses you learn that like you know just because you shoot the thing doesn't mean it's dead yeah yeah so yeah like you, they're all handling yeah and, blood and, and you and find out later on that's how they're like okay let's test the blood and that becomes a huge thing in the movie where you know because they realize that every every part of it's alive so it's gonna you know try to run away yeah, from a hot, <laughs> you know so you know, what, one of the things i love about it is that like mccready who's like the helicopter pilot. He, you know, originally that role was just supposed to be like another member of the ensemble and there wasn't going to be like a hero, you know? And then that got rewritten and, and, but it is funny that like, he's the guy that kind of figures out that he invents the tests. Yeah. He's the one that's like, Oh, well we can try this a hot blade, you know, maybe his madness. It's the play the what if game. They had Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges up for the role as, um, as, um, McCready for child's, uh, Keith Davis character. They had Ernie Hudson was literally signed on. Uh, they were considering Isaac Hayes because he just worked with Carpenter and escape from New York. Uh, Jeffrey Holder, uh, Bernie Casey, Carl Weathers, you know, and then for Cooper, they had William Daniel, Daniels or Brian Dennehy. So that would have been a completely different movie. And also Eastwood as McCready was, was at, thought about. And I think Eastwood could have did it back in 82. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then for Blair, uh, Wilford Brimley's character, Donald Pleasance. But because Donald Pleasance had some other contractual obligations, he couldn't get out of it. If that, I think we would have had uh, Pleasance in there playing Wilford Brimley's <laughs> That part. would have been a really interesting like you you can picture pleasant that's, well, that's, that's the, like yeah. in that scene where you know, he's losing his shit uh, and then you have the round out they were thinking to round out the cast Lee Van Cleef Kevin Conway uh, Powers Booth and Jerry Orbach so how crazy of <laughs> that, that's that's your ultimate movie right there you know the what if game but so Wilford Brimley starts taking the thing apart and I find that disgusting because I mean the visuals are gross. He's like opening a vagina. Yeah. Well, that's it's another very phallic. That's another thing that I think, you know, reason why it gets this like gory that the pornographer of gore handle that Carpenter gets. I think I think, you know, especially for 1982. I mean, there's this idea of like now we see today we see things like autopsies and shows about it and you know, autopsies being portrayed in movies and the the cliche of the guy the guy eating a sandwich while he's doing it and stuff. But here's like an instance where like you're really seeing it like in realist I mean, even though what he's performing the autopsy on is like an alien, 
like the way it's handled is very realistic. So we are seeing like a and lot it looks of blood very real. And I mean, pulling they, out guts. They use all real guts for it and all that. I mean, in his reaction, like, oh my god, this is, you know, it's, it's like that thing where like people, you know, if you're a hunter and you hunt deer or whatever and you eat the meat, like you're you clean it and like that's what you do. You're cutting the animal, but right? like the people, but like people that don't hunt, like that's. That's disgusting, but they wouldn't mind like buying a steak at the the supermarket. You know, like as long as it doesn't look like a real animal. When they're confronted by that, they're like, I don't know if I. But there's a way for it to get there. So I mean, I think that's part of the reason why it's like was hard for people to accept was like that that stuff in the movie. So for me, watching it, it's just so freaky to think that every part of that thing is alive, and I guess it's just biding its time. You know, because then they realize at one point they have to burn everything, you know, and that's what Wilford Brimley's character is is brilliant. He starts systematically realizing, you know, wait a minute, what's going on? He asks Clark, how long were you alone with that dog? And he's like, all day. And he's like, the dog had the free reign. He's like, wait a minute, you're telling me the dog had free reign of this whole place? And then he does a little test on his computer and he realizes if the thing got out. So that scene when he has this breakdown, which you think is nonsense, he's, he's, he he uh, he starts. Are we, are we, should we give us? Is there a spoiler coming up? There's something we should. <laughs> a potential spoiler coming up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he start. Well, yeah. Spoilers galore in this. He uh, he starts destroying everything. He destroys the radio. He destroys the uh, the half tracks for them to get out of there. He destroys the helicopters. You know, because he doesn't want them to make it out. <clears throat> he's trashing the all the electronics with, with an axe, and he's just going on and on. But if you listen to what he's saying, he's talking the truth. He's like, yeah. you know, you think. That yeah. thing wanted to be a dog? No, it wants to be <laughs> one of us. It doesn't want to be a dog. It wants to be one of us. You can't get all your miles. It's a dog. You know, and, and, and then that scene when they finally, they finally, they, they overpower him and he, you know, he, he lets off five shots. He's out of his gun. It looks like they really knock him out. <laughs> it looks like they really knock <laughs> I love him the sound. Really out. Like, <laughs> you know, they really take him down. He's like, oh, oh, oh. And then they put him outside. It's just like he's... Uh, the other like the, the the other shot that I love in that scene is like because Windows is trapped in there with him. He's basically destroying the radio room. Yeah, all the communications. All the communication stuff. So Windows is like sitting in the corner, like beat up a little bit. Yeah, I think he got. And he's just trying to stay out of it. And so like he's just part at the end where he's like he's trying to get up and then he just kind of like, falls back down. Falls back down like kind of blank eyed. Um, now that the reason why I said spoiler alert is because. Okay, there's an argument that I think we've probably even had. Okay, so like, oh how Blair's losing his shit. Yeah, and all that makes sense because Blair looks at a he puts it into the computer. Computer's like, you know, probability of one or more people in the in the in the group being um, infected is seventy five percent. So then he puts in like. How long is it going to take? If it makes it to like civilization, how fast is like the entire world population? It's like twenty seven thousand hours. Yeah, like the entire world to be infected by this thing. So we see that he's losing his shit. We think that he's damaging all this stuff so that it can't leave the camp. Now, spoiler alert: at the end of the movie, we find out that Blair's the thing, or one of them. Yeah. Um, so like. When does he become it? I, I, is he losing his shit because he wants to be isolated? Because he does, we find out that he didn't destroy the helicopter so they can't leave. He's harvesting the parts to make a spaceship. <laughs> so you think, you think it was almost... I'm not saying that's I know, what but, I think. I know, but you're, I'm saying your, your, your argument could be that he's, he's setting himself up to be put out there because he knows if he's put out there, he, he's an isolated and he has time to be with his own self and he could be doing whatever he wants out there. 
Now, the only argument against it is that... What is the, the second part when they, when they go? Because he... There's a brilliant scene well, where they, they, they go out. They, they leave him up there, and he tells them, watch Clark. <coughs> you know, Clark's the only one that's been alone yeah. with that dog. So, for me, I would think he's not the thing yet. But I would say once he's out there, he probably gets taken over probably yeah, yeah. very soon. And then, you're st- then the second brilliant scene, they go up to see if he's okay. And, and he's got a noose a, in the back. There's a noose hanging. And he's like, and he's just like I want to come in. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm maybe, okay now. maybe I lost my shit, but I'm all right now. I'm all right. Hey, 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 but Grady, don't leave. I'm all right now. You know, it's like, I think by that time, he's already the thing. You know? Um, and yeah, below the, the station, he's made an ingenious tunnel system that would make the Viet Cong and Vietnam envious. And he's made this huge... Uh, it's not very huge. It looks like it's something out of the Jetsons. But the personal, you know, you were close. Still, the I mean, yeah. it's some nice, it's like smooth. It's some nice metal work. <laughs> just soldering and galore. So it's, 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 it's amazing. Yeah, because then at the end of the movie, he is the one thing that is. See, then you don't, it's, see, then it's all these, it can be a whole cast for other well, speculation. Here's, I mean, here's the thing. Do the things here's the know thing each about other the, the thing? thing? You know, do they know if they're the things? Or if that's they do the, know? Or that's, they, that's the... That's the one like really big mystery of the movie that never gets answered, and it, you know, it. You could argue whether it need, it should be or not. It's like you really don't understand how it works. It doesn't need to. Like, how does how does it infect? Does it infect the person that's in there, and then from the inside become like in, like a disease? But there, it's ripping through clothes. You know what I mean? Like, there, it's unclear about like when you become doubled, what happens, and if it's a new being, what I happens to the a, old body? Well, I think they're they're it consumes it or whatever. But my point is, once it's a thing, is it all one entity yeah. like the Borg? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, or is it collective? A, if, yeah, is there a or rivalry it, or you know, is there like kind of like you know, if if, if two dogs are the thing. Yeah, can they go together and be like the Borg, or is it more like it's one for all, all for one? You know, because hence when they're getting hurt, they all scramble. Yeah. I mean, it's it. We won't have enough time to hit every beat in this film, but there's so much stuff going on. Um, you know, with the uh, uh, they start Carpenter purposely starts throwing like chum in the water for you thinking it's this person, yeah, that person. some red herring action. You know, you happening. think it's McCready, you don't think it's McCready, you and think just, it's Clark. And like the despair of this movie is like, I mean, it's it's become known as part of what the fans call his like apocalypse or his end of the world yeah, trilogy, the trilogy, which is starting with The Thing, The Prince of Darkness, and then In the Mouth of Madness, which, you know, Honestly, are three of my favorite movies of his. If I had like a top five, those would be like in the top. Those those three would be in the, in the top five. Um, and so it's just it's so fucking bleak. I mean, and that scene where like we're talking about when they first put Brimley in the in like the tool shed, and he's like, I just don't know who to trust anymore. And, and McCready's like, Well, trust is a hard thing to come by these days. And uh, and then. You know, McCready's like, well, why don't you just trust in the Lord? Um, and then there, you have like the, the McCready makes the the audio tape. Yeah, it's weird. His he's keeping an auto auto an auto diary on cassette of what's happening. Yeah, he's just like in case something happens, like there's he wants some record of it. Although after burning the entire camp down, who knows what are the chances? Well, and, you know, and, and it's amazing how Carpenter frames that. I mean, you see yeah. him in the foreground, and you you're expecting something's gonna 
pop up in the background. Yeah, it's basically like he's the on the right hand, the right hand, uh, right uh, right side of right half of the screen, and then the second half of the screen, like still kind of in focus. It's like the hallway. Yeah, they they use a great thing in this movie called the uh, the diopter split focus lens. Yeah, and yeah. they use it for great effect in this movie. One part where um, I mean, De Palma at that point in his career, De Palma was using the shit out of that. Yeah, thing. it's such a cool because you can keep two different things: one but, in the foreground, one in the background. But Carpenter uses it for like less. Like, uh, he's more sparingly and less noticeably, yeah. like not like in your face. And uh, some of it you was lost from the widescreen transfer to like the VHS version because like the instance where Clark is, grabs a scalpel in the foreground, uh, you see his hand behind his hand, he's hiding the scalpel, and in the background is all the action. You wouldn't see that on, on yeah. You know. I mean, so basically, with Deion Sandy, he kind of mentioned it briefly. Is it allows you to have two things in focus that are at two different depths. I mean, normally a lens uh, is like one eye, and you can only have like one distance from the from the camera being focused. And what this allows you to do is to have two distances: something that's at three feet, and then something that that's at ten feet. Those two things are in focus, and everything else is kind of out of focus. It's a really kind of cool thing that got used a lot, kind of in the '80s and stuff. And but Carpenter used it kind of, kind of brilliantly as a storytelling device instead of being kind of flashy. Um, that scene that you're talking about with Clark and the scalpel, um, and Carpenter's just his use and Cundy's use of the widescreen format. I mean, Carpenter shoots a two-three-five, basically the widest. The people shoot in, um, and it's like the letterboxing. I mean, not the letterbox, but the pan and scan business of it's like the eighties. It was like it. a sin, yeah, on Carpenter movies. Um, like if there's one, if there's one director from like the seventies and eighties that you really need to watch his shit in widescreen, it's Carpenter's. Uh, yeah, the the. the the cinematography is brilliant in the movie. With the, like the use of dollies or just handheld. Yeah, beautiful camera Tracking moves. shots around. And also, uh, there is a number of great, um, and it's not forced, uh, ensemble moments. Where at the beginning, when, when you know, they first, uh, they first come across, they, 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 you know, they, they put out the, the dog uh, kennel. And they're all standing there, and the music comes. Or later on, when they when they burn the body, and one of them outside is them. Or at, yeah, the, yeah. at the very beginning, when they're they're tending to the Norwegians, you know, you have them all together, kind of like figuring out, and you see the ensemble cast. And I really love that. It's it's a beautiful uh, ensemble piece, and Carpenter's way of handling it technically. I mean, for people that aren't don't work in the business. I mean, I'm an editor, so. Uh, you know, by profession, so it's a, things like this are a little bit more noticeable to me. I mean, like to cover a scene where you're covering that many people, it's tough. It's a tough thing to make the choices of where the camera needs to be, what you need to see. Um, it's very tricky to cross over, like the director's line, and um, it's just it's a very tr- it's a very slippery slope. Yeah. You could screw it up really easy just with one shot being wrong. You screw up the whole scene. And he does a beautiful job of covering 12 people. Yeah, very well. Um, I guess we should hit on a couple more points before we, 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 we close out of this bad boy. I mean, there's the one scene where they, they literally pin it on uh, Kurt Russell to being the thing. Yeah, he, he, He's able to make his way back in. 
and there, there's a big scuffle. One of the guy has a heart attack. They bring him into the to the to the uh, yeah. That's Norris. Norris. They they bring him. In. He, we know him from Hunter from the eighties. He's the <laughs> captain in Hunter. Yeah. Um, they bring him into the infirmary. Cooper gets on the table. Cooper's trying to give him CPR because he he's in cardiac arrest. The fucking thing's chest opens. Cooper with the pads go into his chest. Scared the shit. I'll tell you. I wanted to hold off on. Well, well, let's. Well, I'll wait on that. That scene is unbelievable, an example of how good the special effects is. Yeah. The thing rips its head off. They burn the body. Uh, there's, shit, there's like two heads there because it jumps up to the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. It's all freaky. And then uh, the, Norris's head splits from the body because they start burning the body on the table. Well, that's how McCready gets the idea. That it's all. That it's all kind of, you know, it's all its own things trying to, to survive yeah i mean well here's the th- you know you come up with the dog scene and that's like holy fuck and how do you like, top how it? are you gonna that's the that's our introduction to like this is what we're dealing with so i mean like yeah they had to kick up the kick it up a little bit and that scene is brilliant i mean if you i mean now that i've seen it you know more times than i can count you yeah. know like it doesn't get me as like as a surprise factor but when you watch, there's nothing like more fun than watching that with somebody that's never seen the movie before. Because when that shit opens up, yeah, when his stomach <laughs> opens up and its teeth and it goes down, it bites the like Cooper's. people lose their shit. I did. I mean, that's that's a. Uh, I was gonna say to, to briefly to, uh, to touch on this, like my history with the movie. I saw it probably when I was way too young to see it, yeah, yeah. and I remember like being so freaked out by it. And then I remember being in kindergarten looking up at the old windows of the old school, literally the old school, not old school. And I'm looking at the windows and I'm making the, the, the you know, windows, his name is windows, and maybe yeah. those windows are windows, maybe that's the thing. And, and yeah, I was yeah. freaked out. Hadn't seen the movie for 15 years. And then in college, our freshman year, I remember I, I, I went home for the weekend with my girlfriend and, you know, uh, we'd gone to bed and I was still watching TV. She's sleeping on me. The thing's on. And I'm like, oh, I haven't seen this in years. And I start watching it. This that scene happens, yeah, yeah. and that scene made me jump. And I woke her up, and she's like, "What's wrong?" I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I was like, "That scared the crap out of me." So I remember I came back on yeah, Monday, yeah. and I was like, "I have to go to you." I was like, "Next time we go into the city to buy film, I have to go to find and I want to buy the thing." Thing, yeah. And we went and bought the thing, and then uh, we watched it, and then you know the rest is history. Yeah, like because that was a kind of a very similar. Uh, it was a movie from my youth. You know, we talked about we've talked about John Carpenter and kind of my connection with him, and and you know, at some point realizing that Carpenter that there was one man that had made all these movies that made such an impact on me, and realizing that that name was John Carpenter, you know, and so like the thing was something that I had seen at a really young age as well, and so and it kind of had slipped through the cracks for a really long time, even though I was getting back into John Carpenter a lot, big time by the time that happened to you and then that just kind of like solidified it that we watched it um the funny thing about this movie on kind of a personal level is uh and we've talked about kind of like my love for horror movies a lot in previous casts but so i start getting like really fucking into horror movies at the end of high school and especially into college and so uh my dad who is um you know, cultured or whatever in terms of a lot of things, music and books and, and cinema and, and whatnot, he starts giving me a lot of shit about horror movies. About like, oh, that's such a, like, it's a waste of time and it's not, you know, whatever. Like, that, the, the same shit that anybody would give horror movies. I think today, I think horror movies 
get a little more recognition than it did in 1997, 98. And then even that that was like – that was at the start of it where there was like this renaissance of horror as being appreciated. Um, It was always frowned upon for some reason. Yeah, I mean it was just thought of as being kind of, uh, you know, crap, you know, like – you know stuff that you could maybe maybe make a lot of money with, but wasn't artistically, uh, you you know respected. But the the one movie I could always say when he was he'd be like giving me crap about horror movies, I'd be like, Dad, what about John Carpenter's The Thing? He's like, Oh well, that <laughs> John Carpenter's The Thing. That's one of the greatest movies ever made. And we're not true. we're not talking about John Carpenter's. And it's thing. interesting. We're talking about these other. It's movies. funny that if you if, if you find people who aren't into horror, they still all have one movie that you can cite and they're like, "Yeah, I love it." And I'm like, "I thought you weren't into horror." They're like, "Well, I love this movie or that movie." It's it's interesting. They always have that one baby, and the thing's a perfect example. I, there's so much going on in the movie. I mean, even there's scenes we're talking about uh, cinematography where there's POV, and you don't know whose POV it is and who's why. Is it the, at the beginning it's the dog's POV, or later on in the movie you yeah, feel yeah. like like when right before Fugues' death, um, there's something sneaking around and he pulls that old, you know, like yeah, the scary, yeah, yeah. that sound effect. That, you, know. Well, you know, what I find, I would love to see, I mean, and you can find like really crappy looking like work print deleted scenes and stuff online, but I've never seen anyone like, that's one thing watching at this time that I was like, I wonder what the fuck happened to Fugues. Well, they talk about there's, there's different cuts of it. There was a TV cut that had a little more uh, of, of you meeting the characters at the beginning prior to the Norwegians arriving, which Carpenter hated. Then there's yeah. other cuts. So there's bootlegs versions and of it out the there. some of the TV cuts have like really bizarre music cues put in. So I don't know where they got the it's music another, from. It's another example of like, you know, uh, it's weird. I found out years ago, like, why do they have different cuts? And sometimes if your movie's an hour and a half and they have to fit it into a two-hour frame, yeah, yeah. they would just say, we need more footage. And then that's how Nowadays, you like, they would just, like, cut more footage and we'll just add a shitload of commercials. Yeah. But there was a time, like, Halloween has a TV cut. Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness has, like, a, a crazy <laughs> TV cut yeah. that's so different. Um, uh, Night of the Creeps. But you'd see these things and people don't realize. So you'd have all these extra... So I would love to see them come out with it within a release or just a... These proper deleted scenes. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, what happens to Fuse is like a complete mystery. Basically, we find somebody that they end up finding, spoiler alert, they find remains of a burnt person. Yeah, with glasses. And he's like, I guess maybe he burned himself. <laughs> you know, it's like they don't know what happened to him. They just find a dead body, well, like it's, a it's, charred body. It's interesting because Carpenter and Kurt Russell have admitted that they don't know. Even they admit they don't know when the aliens took over certain people. Yeah, They're yeah. like, ah, we don't know. It just it's up it's up to the belief. Now the ending. Okay. The ending. So we're skipping. A ha- great. Like, look, if you haven't seen this movie, yeah, you gotta go see it. Like, there's so much. What we are can't, you waiting for? I mean, we, like, we're you should already. Have, you should have turned this off. Yeah, like. we're already an hour, fifteen <laughs> minutes into this cast. We can't go through the whole. The, this is the, this is the movie to go beat for beat. But there's just you know there's a it slowly goes downhill. There's the great scene where they're tying people up to the couches. They're trying to find out who people yeah. are, and that's another another one of these big jump scenes, and it's another brilliant use of editing because they do a lot of funny stuff with a lot of you know, and that's the, the other thing about this movie that's i think a lot of people lose in retro in, in thought is that there's a lot of really kind of subtly funny moments which come out more because it helps in a horror movie to have you laugh and then you know they're, they're so the link and just there. you talked about the camera moves there's just so much brilliant stuff maybe the best performance by a dog ever jed the dog that dog when he walks that the Towards the be- it's towards the beginning, and he's walking down the hall, and he goes to one to the one room, and then he stops, and then he looks, and the whole time the camera's tracking with him, and then he walks 
into stops at the door and then walks in and then we see the shadow of the per the silhouette of the person yeah. look and then it fades. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's nobody's that's nobody's silhouette on the they actually they say that Carpenter got somebody else. That's yeah, not one yeah, of the twelve yeah. principal actors, so you wouldn't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they also say how, how good of an actor Jed the dog was that Jed never looked at any of the, the, the camera. Yeah. Didn't yeah. look at any of the crew for that. So he's actually like in there. <laughs> he's method acting there. Yeah. Just the I can't words can't express how brilliant this movie is. Yeah, and is. it just goes, you know, and then there's a big climactic scene where they uh, Kurt Russell uh, seems to be the lone survivor. He takes he takes out the whole camp. Um then you have his confrontation with the thing which uh I never realized until I saw deleted um miniature work. Yeah, it's yeah. supposed to be like in that movie Leviathan at the end of Leviathan, which is kind of similar. It's supposed to be like an amalgam of all the things yeah, yeah. through the it's movie. Like Wolf for Half, Wolf for Brimley. There's a bunch of dog stuff. In yeah, there. and I never, and you don't really get that too much in this. A lot cut. of tentacles happening, you know. And then uh, you know, Kurt Russell says the, you know, he says his like uh, his. 80s line like you know what does he say he says like you know fuck you a lot of good lines like my other favorite line is when the the head thing is going through the door and palmer turns around he's like you gotta be, be fucking, fucking kidding. kidding it's 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 great and then so the whole thing denouement russell's alone keith david shows up yeah, yeah. Keith David, they're in the middle of like trying to figure this shit out. Why they leave Keith David where he is without anybody else, I don't know. But they're like, yeah, you, st- you stay here. And if, you know, shit if it goes down, if, shit, if somebody, if Paul, if uh, Blair tries to come in and fucking fry him, yeah. and Charles is like, all right, whatever. Yeah, then, then he so leaves. So they leave, and then they're trying to figure it out, and then they see Childs leave. They see him run out into the run out, and they don't the know darkness. why he leaves his post. Now, he, and then he shows up, and 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 you know, Russell's like, "Where were you, Childs?" And he's like, "You know, I saw something in the darkness, and I went out after it, and I got lost in the snow, and you know." And then it, you know, he's and then they're kind of like I saw some voodoo bullshit. Yeah, there's <laughs> some uncomfortable silence. It's funny that you, you talk about the, the, the great thing. Also, this is one of my favorite commentaries, audio commentaries. It's Russell and Carpenter, and you can just hear him at the beginning of the movie open up a bottle of booze, and yeah, it yeah. sounds like they get progressively drunk and they're just chain smoking because you can hear the Zippo lighters. And then Russell, every time Russell talks about Keith David, like Keith David injured his hand in a car accident, so they were he had his cast painted uh, his skin color, and they're trying to hide it most of the movie with gloves and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you could see. It sometimes you know yeah, if, if yeah. you're looking for it you could just, yeah that the, that's the, the one thing i remember about that is that how much russell loves keith David. yeah he, uh <laughs> so at the end of it they don't you know you don't really know what's going on and he's and they're, they're kind of like well if we had any surprises for each other you know i think we would have did it already and, yeah, and he's, he's like, like all right so he's like let's just what's the plan he's like let's just wait here and see what happens like all right and they, they share a bottle it's like doom, doom, doom. now it's always been left ambiguous. What the hell happened? Yeah, are they yeah. both the thing? Are they both the thing? thing? Are they not the thing? Is one the uh, thing? What's the thing? I don't know. If, if they're both the thing, you would think that they would know. Yeah, they'd be like, hey. Yeah, hey, it's all <laughs> right. Hug, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go to sleep. But now I've been, I was reading online, and it's supposedly Carpenter's answered this. Okay. And Carpenter, from, from no, what I've heard. You know, you're, you're, you're now you're, you're teaching the master. Yeah, now I've heard that Carpenter says, I've, I've, I've never known what the fuss was about the ending of, the, uh, of this movie because it's clear that Kurt Russell is not the thing and Keith David is. Because if you look, he says, there's, in the close-ups, they emphasize Kurt Russell's breathing. You could see the smoke. It looks like he's smoking a cigarette. You cut back to, to Keith David, you see no breathing. And I watched it when we watched it, and I'm like, you know, that's true. Uh, initially, when you see his silhouette come in and he's standing there, Keith David, you could see maybe a little breathing. But once they get into medium and close-ups, 
it looks like uh, Russell's using a fog machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's smoke all around him. There's no smoke at Keith David. But then the opposing argument of this is that people say, well, if that's true, the thing can't imitate inanimate objects. So if you have an earring, you have a nose ring, whatever, that shit gets pushed out. Keith David is still wearing one of his earrings. So, but according to, to, to the word on the street, Carpenter says it's clear that, and it's true, you look, Russell, is, you see the smoke coming right out, and there's no smoke at Keith David. So it's like, huh. Hmm. And then that's the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, Carpenter has a brilliant way of having uh, either the ambiguous ending or, like, the bleak ending. And I can't think Like of, in the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> yeah, like, I can't think of any movie of his that doesn't, especially horror-wise, that doesn't have that. I mean, even Big Trouble has, like, kind of... Oh, yeah, with the monster coming yeah, out. Yeah, like, it's not over. Yeah, it's not, not over, over. It's over. not over. Uh, this is a brilliant movie. It's It's... It's interesting how good it still holds up to this day, you know. And it's it's one of these movies where you know who knows if it's I, it, it is timeless, and I think it'll always be timeless. I can't see how it's aside from the technology in the film, and then the stock of the movie. There's no real way to say that it's going to really age or, or just get yeah. Outdated. It's uh, I mean, it, it's really kind of a masterpiece. I mean, it's so well done. Um, what would you do for Sleepover Stars? Or, I'm sorry, Mega Joe Colas. Mega Joe. If I was had the pop, pop certain... I mean, I would go more than you could give it. Yeah, 10, a, 10 out like, of this 11 out of 10. This or? is literally one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Like, I remember there was some kind of, like, film festival thing that I did years ago that I had to apply, and they wanted you to write, like, your five favorite movies. This was on that list. Yeah. Like, so... I mean, no joke. Like, I put it in Ray that the thing is one of my five favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, it just, it's, it's just, it's so fucking bleak. And uh, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like, you, I don't you, think you can get much, on it. you can't get much better than it for like this kind of movie. Like, yeah. it, and you can't even really think of like another movie like it, really. I mean, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 78 remake, which is a personal <laughs> favorite of the two of ours. I mean, that's brilliant in a completely different way. And I guess, like, the bleakness of it and everything is comparable. And obviously this idea of paranoia, which is, you know, the other thing that we didn't even really talk about. There's all this stuff about, you know, what, you know, the, the, oh, the, themes the horrors and the, yeah. and the themes. And a lot of people talk about it being, like, a metaphor for AIDS. But this really was, like... The original was McCarthyism, and then that was one of the things uh, people try to measure sequels or, not, or, I guess, remakes, where can they still convey the themes a certain way? And this was the time, yeah, who knew, who, who had age, couldn't tell. You, this idea of, like, who's who, and there's also the thing about the, the horror of, like, losing yourself in it, and then the horror of not knowing who's out to get you there's like the, the horror of disease and decay um you know like i said th this would be a brilliant metaphor for like the AIDS scare of the early 80s but like the that started like in 82 yeah um and then even more so in like 83 84 uh so like while they were making it like the first reported case of AIDS in America didn't happen yet so there wasn't the intention but i could see that maybe it hitting theaters around the time that this is starting to happen, being like maybe uh, one of the reasons why people couldn't fucking handle it. Maybe yeah. 
uh, last before we go, you played the game. You won the game from <laughs> 2002. I uh, hear the uh, Carpenter said the game is canon, and it and it's supposedly from the point of view, it shows that Russell survived and Keith David died. <laughs> it definitely Russell's in it. There's been this, several adaptations. Uh, there's a there's a a book. A novelization, which is not the short story, but a novelization of the Carpenter movie. Uh, in the early 90s, there was a uh, Dark Horse comics put out a few uh, runs that were like sequels to the move. John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, wow. And then there was a PlayStation 2 game. Out of nowhere, 2002. That came out, and I got it. And like that movie could not have been more geared towards me. The game. The game. Like, the character in the in the game is named J.F. Blake. And I'm J. Blake. and But the entire time, all the characters in the movie call that character Blake. So I was like, Blake, what are you doing out here? And he's like, I don't know, but I'm scared just with you. <laughs> and so, like, it was like, I was like, it was taking me to a whole new fucking dimension. And man. you loved it. Oh, I loved it. It, it did something that, I mean, I'm not a huge gamer. Yeah. Um, so it definitely did something that no game beforehand had ever done, and I don't know if games since have done it. It added this whole aspect of um, there was like a trust meter, and so like you could see if the characters around you would start to uh, lose trust in you by your actions. So you couldn't just run around and be fucking crazy like some people like to do in a video game to be because they'll kill you because yeah. they'll think you're the thing but if they you have their trust you can kill somebody and they'll be like oh well you know Blake knows what's going down you know uh, so it had like this whole element of uh, that gave a depth to it that other games uh, haven't had spoiler McCready is in the game towards the end there's also a character a doctor character uh, that they use the likeness of John Carpenter oh yeah is in the isn't it um, that's great it's so, a it's a fun game. I would I should break it out and play, play it again. again. Was it PS2? It was PS2. Funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we, this thing could have been like a four hour podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like we just went through cliff notes. <laughs> so if we've missed anything, we're sorry. Please uh, drop us a line, email us, or uh, uh, you know, Facebook us, Twitter us. Let us know. Um, I'm sure everyone has an opinion about it, and I'm, I'm sure we have missed stuff that we're gonna you know once we leave and go to bed. Finally, we're gonna say crap we forgot. So. Um, We'll try to remember all that and maybe do a sequel. Who knows? Yeah. Um, thank you very much for listening. Check out our other podcasts um, at SaturdaySleepovers.Podwits.com. Uh, we are Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, Blake and I do stuff on Podwits.com. You can find our sidecast there. Uh, I do other things as well with the Podwits. Check that out at Podwits.com. We're on Twitter. We're on uh, Facebook. We're on iTunes. We're on Poddroid. We're all over the place. Uh, Blake, you've got a, a blues site for your music? Uh, yeah, jblakeblues.com. There's a, you can find links to buy my album. Um, also, if you're in the New York City area, I'm starting to play a lot of shows. It's, you can go meet them. Uh, late winter and spring come you, out. You can they can this. come s- sign your Saturday night movie sleepovers <laughs> uh, paraphernalia that we have selling. Uh, well, maybe in the soon we will. Uh, thank you very much for watching. Let friends know. Tell other people. Uh, share us. Like us. Uh, write to us. Tell us what you like or don't like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's fun. And share your love with John Carpenter's The Thing with us, please. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, just watch out out there because you don't know who is the thing. So until next time. Later. Don't, 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 don't.